We are continuing our series on Paul's letter to the Romans. We are in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 this morning. We are finally reaching the end of this indictment against all of humanity. Before we read God's holy and errant word, let us turn to the Lord and ask him to bless our reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. God, we give you thanks for your word that you have spoken to us. We pray now that you would guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Last week, we looked at Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, where Paul is responding to what could have been and were, according to Paul's comments, common objections to this indictment against all humanity that he's been presenting since chapter 1, verse 18. If you recall, chapter 3 begins with Paul saying that the Jewish people have a tremendous advantage over the Gentiles, since the Jews have received the oracles of God. Out of all the nations, God has chosen to spoke to the Jewish, to speak to the Jewish people. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, has revealed himself and his will to them. This knowledge of God offered to him through his word should not be underestimated. In it, the Jews, as God's chosen people, have received the law of God, which reveals God's standard for righteousness, as well as the covenantal promises of God, to which God is faithful. But as we pick up 
In verse 8 this week, we have a follow-up question. Well then, are the Jews any better off? And we see Paul's answer. Even though he's just said a few verses earlier that they have a tremendous advantage of having God's word, he answers, no, not at all. This might seem a bit contradictory, but we will quickly understand what Paul means here. Before we move into the text, though, let's understand what these verses represent. It is here that we have reached the end of the trial. This indictment against all of humanity is being wrapped up in these few verses. There are no more witnesses to be called. There is no more defense to be given. All we are left with are Paul's closing remarks before the sentencing. And they are brutal. As I've been saying, Paul begins, everyone, Jew and Greek alike, are under sin. And don't miss the force of this spiritual diagnosis that Paul has just given. All of humanity is under sin. It isn't just that humanity is guilty of committing sins as though it is an occasional problem. The issue isn't that every once in a while I stub my toe, which results in a string of inappropriate language from my mouth. Or I sometimes do not give thought to those around me, causing me to act in selfish ways. No, no, that isn't it. Nor is it even that humanity has a habit of sinning. The issue isn't that I routinely get angry or gossip or drink a little too excessively or spend a little bit too much time and money shopping to satisfy my addiction to material things. No, that isn't it either. It's far worse than that. The problem isn't that we commit sinful acts or nurture sinful attitudes. The problem is that humanity is under sin. That is to say that we are by nature sinners. At the very core of who we are, we are plagued by this disease of sin and it has infected every aspect of of us. And it is a terminal disease. Paul's going to speak to the origin of our sinful nature in chapter 5, but for now he wants us to understand that our inborn condition means that we are enslaved to sin. Humankind is dominated by sin. Humanity is polluted by sin. Humanity outside the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is helpless in the face of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones states, the case of the Bible is that this is the truth about everybody who has ever been born into this world since the fall. We are all born under sin. Now, this is simply a biblical postulate. It is something the Bible says about everybody. Children are not born innocent. They are born under sin, with sin in them. They are born with the guilt of Adam's guilt upon them. They have the pollution of his nature. King David says it this way. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. In Ephesians, Paul notes that we all were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us, without exception, are born in a, we're not born in a neutral state, but into 
a sinful nature which is under the wrath of God. So we see that the picture that Paul has been painting for us in Romans isn't just that every once in a while the Gentiles did things that were dishonorable to God. It isn't just that the Jews occasionally broke a law or two. Rather, the picture Paul is painting is one in which all of humanity has turned at its very core against God. The natural state of humankind is to reject God and turn away from Him. And Paul recognizes that this is a critical moment as he lays out the gospel message for he understands that we have to rightly diagnose the human condition in order to correctly understand the treatment that must be applied. Paul is trying to set the stage here for the good news of Jesus Christ to be shared. But he knows that it's necessary that we first understand our desperate need for a Savior. That we are not only sinners, but that we are helplessly and hopelessly trapped in it. And we sitting here today need to take note of this for ourselves as we seek to apply the gospel to our own lives. Do we truly understand the depth of our sin and thus understand our need for a Savior? We need to pay attention to what Paul is doing here because he's providing us with godly wisdom on this matter if we're willing to allow Scripture to serve as a mirror for us. There are two other things we should be taking note of as we exposit this text. First, be paying attention to Paul's argument for evangelism purposes. Paul is going to lay out for us very clearly that the primary problem with humanity is not that man needs a little help. It isn't that we need guidance. Our primary problem isn't that we need to be a bit happier. We don't need a friend. The fundamental issue is not one of self-improvement or selflessness or knowledge. Paul makes very clear here that the problem that humanity faces is our guilt before a holy God and the fact that we need to be put right with God. That isn't to say that we don't need help. We do. It isn't to say that we don't need to grow in holiness. We do. That we don't need to get rid of selfish desires. We do. It's to emphasize that these things will never be worked out as long as we are not First, reconcile to God and in right relationship with Him. Our work of sharing the gospel should reflect this primary need of the the fallen human condition. And Paul's argument here gives us a model for evangelism that we should take seriously. Along those same lines, we need to take note of Paul's argument here for the purpose of living in a fallen world and seeking to understand how to best engage in society. Too often the problems we face in society are incorrectly diagnosed and therefore the treatment that is suggested is all wrong. I hear all the time comments like this. The problem in our society is unequal distribution of wealth. No, the problem is sin. Newsflash, it isn't just the wealthy who are greedy and desire power. My point is that Paul makes it very clear that if we are to understand a cure and be healed of the symptoms, we have to first come to grips with the disease. So as we now move through Paul's argument, be thinking about the implications for yourself and the application of the gospel to your life, for the implications for evangelism as we seek to share the gospel with others, and about the implications for how we approach the society in which we live. So now as we 
prepare to examine this string of passages that Paul unleashes from God's word to hammer home this indictment, I want to first draw attention to Paul's arrangement of these passages. This hasn't been done haphazardly. There is a structure here which, for our purpose this morning, I want to deal with in two parts. And these two parts will work together to make clear his overarching overarching charge that all humanity is guilty before God. So first, Paul establishes the universal nature of sin and identifies the depth of humanity's ruined relationship with God. Quoting Psalm 14, 53, and possibly also Ecclesiastes 7, Paul states, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Paul doesn't want to be misunderstood here, does he? Who stands blameless before God? Who is in absolute conformity to the law of God? Who is without any blemish or lack? No one. No one. No one, not one. Since the fall, there has not been one righteous person saved Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what your personal opinion is for yourself. It doesn't matter what you think being righteous should be or what should satisfy God's demands. God has set the standard and none have lived up to it. Paul is very black and white here about the reality that what the reality is outside of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If you are not faultless, then you are not righteous. And if you are not righteous, then you are a sinner. And if you are a sinner, then you are under sin and under the wrath of God, period. You are either in line with the plumb line of God's standard or not. And how close or how far you are from being in line doesn't matter one bit. Paul isn't going to stop there because scripture doesn't stop there. What is the actual state of humanity as a result of sin? Listen to what he says. No one understands. No one seeks God. As Martin Lloyd-Jones states, what is sin? Sin is folly. It is the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. It is the absence of wisdom. Under the condition of sin, humanity's understanding has been darkened. As Paul has already said in Romans 1 and He will say it again in Ephesians 4. This doesn't necessarily mean that someone can't be very intelligent in worldly ways and have an amazing ability to understand worldly things. What it does mean is that when it comes to understanding and apprehending spiritual truth, there is a complete and utter failure. There is a complete inability to understand the divine. There is also a complete inability to truly understand one's self. There is no understanding of sin. There is no understanding of one's own sinful nature. No understanding of the precarious position in which one finds himself. No understanding of the wrath of God. No understanding of God's way of salvation. Paul is showing us here that our natural state is in darkness, in folly, in a complete and utter lack of understanding. What's more, if I have no understanding of God or of my need to be saved from my desperate safe, then... I will have no desire for God. I will have no desire to know Him. I will have no desire to worship Him. I will have no desire to enjoy Him. I will have no desire to communicate with Him and seek Him in prayer. I will have no desire to know His will. I will have no desire to be obedient to Him. I will not be trying to find 
away to God, to get into his presence, to sit at his feet. Paul quotes God's word, which puts it much more succinctly, no one seeks God. Humanity in its sinful state does not seek God. As one theologian puts it, man by nature is a God-hater. He is at enmity with God. He is dead in trespasses and sins. Show me a man who can say honestly that he is seeking after God, and I will show you a man who has been quickened by God's spirit, whom God has sought. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Left to ourselves, we would never seek him. We would remain permanently at enmity with him. So rather than seeking God and the righteous path he has created to walk, humanity has turned It's back on God and gone its own way to wander aimlessly in darkness with no hope of finding its way out. Outside of God's grace, humanity is on the wrong road and it is a road that is wide and leads to destruction. It's a good time to comment that we shouldn't fail to recognize here Paul's emphasis that this state is universal. Again and again and again, Paul repeats, no one, no one. None are righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks, no one. So having now established the universal nature of the sinful state of humanity, Paul will now turn his attention to the devastating effects of this turning away from God. How does man's sinful state manifest itself? Paul identifies a few areas for us. First, Paul says that together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Have you ever opened a container of milk in the morning to have with your cereal and the smell of long expired dairy product just hits you in the face? You walk over to the kitchen sink trying your best not to breathe through your nose lest you lose your breakfast before you eat it and you begin to pour the container of milk down down the drain only to discover that it is no longer in liquid form. The word used here for worthless is the word used for bad milk. Humanity under sin is soured milk. It is of no value. It's useless. No one does good, not even one. Now, I know we might object that there are plenty of folks who, apart from the saving grace in Jesus Christ, make significant contributions to society, who are very good citizens, who give great sums of money to charitable work, who give of themselves in sacrificial ways. Surely this isn't useless. Surely they are doing good. Paul wouldn't argue with this. He isn't denying that people can do good in many senses of the word, but this scripture Paul is using is not a statement of secular morality. The point here is that in terms of spiritual good, in terms of living in a way that is pleasing to God, which means living a life to the glory of God alone, humanity under sin is incapable. This makes sense, right? If sin is in control then it corrupts everything. All of our actions are polluted. Even our actions would seem outwardly good are done out of a desire for our own glory, our own self-satisfaction, our own gain. And because they are tainted with our sin, they are filthy rags before the Lord. 
This is what Jesus identifies in the Pharisees in Luke 16, is it not? You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The pollution goes to the very core of our being. This is the doctrine of total depravity, by the way, which isn't saying that people act as rottenly as they possibly could. This is not what is meant by total depravity. Rather, it is identifying that our entire human nature is corrupted. There's no part of us that is left untouched by sin. And even though we might be able to uphold parts of the law, we have an inward disposition which opposes God. And here we move into the second part of the scripture passages used by Paul to demonstrate the depth of our sin. Having established the universal nature of sin and the brokenness of humanity's relationship with God, Paul is now going to turn his attention to demonstrate how this sin manifests itself in our lives, especially in our relationships with each other. And he begins by highlighting human speech. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? There's a reason why James puts a great deal of emphasis on taming the tongue. He says that the tongue is like a small rudder that guides a large ship. He also notes how a small fire can burn down a whole forest. So does the tongue have the potential to start a blaze in our lives. You want a very clear demonstration of the depravity of humanity? Listen to how those around you talk to one another. To how they talk about one another. Perhaps listen to yourself. As one commentator puts it, the universal dimension of sin is nowhere more evident than human speech. Paul here uses some very graphic images. The throat is seen as an open grave. Imagine opening up a grave a few weeks after someone has been buried when the stench of death is at its height. The foul odor is offensive and beyond description. This is your throat under the condition of sin. If the heart is dead, what emanates from the mouth will smell of death. The passages Paul uses also paint a picture of tongues speaking falsehoods and flatteries and lies. The words might seem sweet like honey, but they are full of poison. We are particularly good at this in the South, aren't we? We have perfected this to an art form. We love blessing people's hearts, don't we? Bless her heart. She... Fill in the insult. Bless his heart, he fill in the insult. We know it's an insult, even though it's sugar-coated. How about South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley last year responding to a comment by Donald Trump about how the people of South Carolina were embarrassed by her? Her response was very simple. Bless your heart. And it apparently did the trick because she has been recently chosen by Trump as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Poison coated in honey. 
there is an incredible amount of poison in words out there, whether they are coated with sweetness or not. I think probably perhaps more than any other time in history. Just get on the social media outlet. See how people are talking to one another. Get on the news and talk shows. Listen to the vitriol. Glance at some of the popular magazines and books out there. They are filled with lies and false promises of happiness based on worldly things. And it isn't just each other whom we speak ill about and to. It's God. God is blamed and slandered. His name is used in vain. God is cursed openly in our society. Shouldn't be surprising then that it isn't just our words that are sinful. It is also our deeds. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined in misery. The way of peace they have not known. If humanity is sinful by nature and sin is destructive, then it it isn't any wonder that our world is filled with so much destruction and strife. The wars and conflicts are unceasing. There is no peace. And all the broken relationships lead to misery. Paul writes to Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And here in Romans, Paul has now brought us full circle. How can we know peace if we have no wisdom? Because we don't fear God. Remember what the Proverbs teach? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Paul brings us back around to give us this cause of it all, the real explanation, both of the state of man in sin and of the actions of which he is guilty because he is in that state. What is it? There is no fear of God. There is no reverence. There is no awe before the Lord. There is no acknowledgement that God is a consuming fire. And what happens when there is a failure to recognize that our lives are playing out before Almighty God with no thought or sense of God's greatness and power and glory? We become bold and arrogant. We dismiss godly wisdom. We blaspheme God's name. We sin with no fear because we don't recognize that one day we will stand before Almighty God and face judgment for our actions. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. This is Psalm 14, the first psalm Paul quoted in the list of passages. And at last, we have come to the end of the trial. And Paul says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All that Paul has been saying is summed up. In two verses. Who had the law? The Jews. They were the recipients of the law as God's chosen people. But not even God's chosen people could uphold the law. Paul has just shown this through their own scriptures. Paul is implying here, therefore, that the Jews were under as much condemnation and wrath as the Gentiles. 
the case is closed. All stand guilty before God. Jews and Gentiles alike, no one will be justified. No one will be found righteous through the law. Hopefully, as we hear these words, we are left speechless. We have no more arguments, no more excuses, no more ground left to say a word. We should have no desire to continue to try to assert ourselves saying, but I've done this, I've done that. We have gotten to the place where we are forced to recognize, if we've been paying attention at all, that you and I are, as Presbyterian pastor and Professor Jack Miller once said, a lot worse off than we thought. There is a demand on our lives that we cannot answer, and it doesn't matter how good of a person we think we are. It doesn't matter how hard we have tried. We stand before God guilty of breaking his holy law, and there is absolutely nothing we can do to reconcile this problem. Left to ourselves, there is no escape from the wrath to come. But Paul has brought us here to this place. That although you and I are a lot worse off than we think, we might realize that in Jesus we are far more loved than we could have ever imagined. It isn't, it is against the other darkness of our sinful nature that we can truly see how glorious the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. God came into our mess, into our depravity, into our rejection of him, into our utter inability to uphold the law and all that it demands, and he took it upon himself in Jesus Christ. And although we have been silenced by the acknowledgement of our sinful nature, may we rejoice before the cross of Christ for God's salvific work to create a way where there was no way. All glory and praise to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we acknowledge that we were lost in our sin, that we were lost in our darkness, that we were enemies of you. It is only by your gracious work in Jesus Christ that we can come before you and be found righteous, being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God, we give you thanks for this work. We pray that you would help us, enable us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to grow in your grace and knowledge and truth. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.